I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded. Well, I'm not in Baltimore this episode. I'm actually back home at my parents' house in Missouri. So anyway, I'm yeah, this is where the show is today. Anyway, today's episode um, is going to be about um, a very polarizing case in our history from the 80s, as many things were. Um, it's the Subway Vigilante, Vigilante, whatever, Subway Vigilante, um, from the Trial by Media series on Netflix. So yeah, I am back here in Missouri and it was, it was kind of like a last minute thing. Last minute for me is like two weeks, three weeks tops planning, um, And I decided that, you know, I'd spoken with hubby and every birthday weekend, um, and this is what this is leading to, um, every birthday weekend of mine, either before, um, like if my birthday falls during the middle of the week, I'll celebrate the weekend before, or if it's like toward the end of the week, I'll celebrate on that weekend. But I always like to go to the beach because that is my escape. I'm a June baby. Um, and I just love the water. I love the ocean. So I always like to go to the beach. But obviously, even though the beaches are open and folks are going, I'm nervous because folks aren't doing their due diligence. And I don't want to get sick. I don't want my hubby to get sick. I don't want my friends to get sick. Um, so, or certainly I don't want to be the reason why all those people that I care about get sick. So no beach. And I, and I had floated around the idea to some of my friends, well, what if we go to like a crab house or something like that? And we sit outside and even some of my friends were like, I don't know about that. So I was just like, you know what? I think what I want to do is go see my parents. Um, my hubby and I, I, I talk about this. I'm sure I've talked about this on the show before, but excuse me, hubby and I like to travel and COVID has really put a cramp in our style. Um, And my parents like to travel too. And what was going to happen is my dad had been talking for like maybe a month solid. Every, every, off and on for like a month. Want to come see you. Want to see you. It's been a while since I've seen you. Even though we had spent Christmas with um, them, even though we didn't come back to Missouri, we had spent Christmas with them. Um, Dad was like, I, you know, complaining because he wasn't able to travel and that he wanted to come and see us. And so the last time he mentioned that he wanted to come and see us, he said something like, well, you know, me and your mama, we're just going to get in the the truck and come on, come see you because we're not going to get on the plane. And I don't know about your parents or people in your life, but everybody has somebody in their life that when they lay out a plan, count on it count on them actually going through with that plan because that's just how they are. And the minute my daddy said that, I said, oh, shoot. So I, I, I knew that he was going to get his old butt, him and mama, they, he was going to get them, them old butts in the truck and go all the way to Baltimore um, because they love to, ro- they love road trips. I, I love road trips too, but like mom and dad really love road trips. And so I was just like, okay, so that ain't going to work because immunocompromised, up in age, all of that. I'm like, no, thank you. You keep your old butt at the house. 
me and the hubby will come and get you. Well, we'll come and, and hang out with you. And so that made daddy happy. And at first I was like, you know what? That's a mighty long, because I mean, think about it. You look at Baltimore on a map and then you even touch Missouri, even St. Louis, you drive in many miles, that over a thousand miles, almost, I mean, honestly, from Kansas City to Baltimore, it's like almost 2000 miles, something like that. It's like 2000, something like that. Anyway, um, that's a long haul. If, especially if you don't stop, which me and hubby, we don't like to stop. My mom and dad, they like to stop. They like to stay over in hotels. And so that's why I was nervous because they were going to, they were going to have to stay over at a hotel and I'm not ready. I'm personally not ready for any of my people to stay in hotels because it's just, it's too risky, man. Um, so hubby and I, we thought for a second, well, well, let's just hop on a plane. And I told, I made a mistake and I told daddy and dad was like, absolutely not. If y'all going to come here, you got to, you got to drive. I, I don't trust the planes, um, for their cleanliness. And let's be real. Let's be real. We might, you might say that I'm being over paranoid. Um, but the fact remains we get sick. Y'all, we all come back from the sniffles unless we're doing the Naomi Campbell thing and we get in a full body suit on of protective gear um, and cleaning things down. We all come down with a little bit of the sniffles or we have to take emergency in order to um, stay a little bit healthy because those things are germ boxes, right? They were germ boxes before COVID-19, right? So now that COVID is here, it's just, for me, it feels like an unnecessary risk. Um... And then the fact that I just, you know, it was rough. So we nixed the flight idea and we just, we ended up driving, which it was actually not bad traffic. The only traffic was on the, on the road were the, the trucks. Um, but every gas station we went in, we had our mask on, we washed up, we had our um, Purell and things like that. And I think the only thing I have is just those doggone allergies, man. I'm, I mean, it's so, so a couple of things. Number one, as I'm old aging, and this weekend was certainly my birthday, um, birthday weekend, I am noticing that my allergies are getting worse. And so I'm passing through these states and my eyes are about to pop out of their sockets. And then I get here to mom and dad's house and they have the most beautiful, large dog. And when I'm saying large, I'm talking about big dog, big dog. Um, so big that when the dog sits in your lap, he's like spilling out of the chair. That's how big the dog is. Dog weighs like 125. Um, yeah, <laughs> the dog weighs 125 pounds. Um, probably even 130, but they put him on a diet. So he might just be at 125 because he slimmed down a little bit. Um, anyway, but pet dander. When I tell you I have... The dog's name is Jesus. I have Jesus hair in my locks. Pretty sure I've been eating Jesus hair. Um, it's definitely in my nose. Feel like it's in my ears. Um, definitely when I get out the shower and, you know, oil up, it's definitely all in the oil. Um, all just nice and coated on my legs. Um, you know, because it's, it's, it's a part of the oil. You know, you put the oil on your legs to moisturize. Well, Jesus hair, I guess, is moisturizing too. Anyway, and mom and the thing, the bad thing about it is mom and dad vacuum a lot. That dog just sheds hair. And so, of course, my husband is allergic to a pet dander. So he's sneezing. And I'm over here just feeling like a hairball because 
it's just hair all over the place and my eyes aren't bul- bulging out of my socket the sockets anymore but now I just feel like I'm wiping hair off of my face and out, away from my mouth like every five seconds but I think that's just me being paranoid anyway but outside of that I've had the most beautiful birthday weekend because it was real chill um I drank so much wine um, <laughs> so much wine and then got to see so many family members because I'm most of my immediate family on my mama's side, they're all in the Kansas City, Wichita area, right? Which they're not super close, but you know, it's there's a history there. Black folks just go between Kansas City and Wichita. That's just what you know. It was just part of the the, the travel pattern. Um, and so, of course, we got I, you know I got family in Wichita, Kansas, family in Independence. Ooh, excuse me, I'm a um, lazy weekend. Anyway. Um, I have family all over this little area here, and so I got to see a lot of them, and then got to really take um, time down at the waterfront in the Power and Light District district in the city. Um, and even though it's COVID, you know, during COVID and a lot of things are shut down, there's still outdoor seating. And we went to this bomb um, Ethiopian place, which I feel like the food was just a little bit watered down for like tourists and city folk because it wasn't quite super spicy like I'm used to back in Baltimore where at the at the restaurant I go to called Dukem they don't water down nothing take it or leave it you know my cousin's in the kitchen anyway but it, se- it seemed like it's a family-run affair and so they really don't care they're they're making food for people that they know want to eat it and if it's too hot for you oh well anyway um so we ate this food and I was trying to order stuff that wasn't so spicy because my mom, she has these dietary restrictions ever since she had um, colon cancer. She was, she, uh, because of the type of surgery that she had to have to rid her of the cancer, um, she can't process certain foods. And so I went all out of my way trying to make sure that she was able to eat something in this. I got a big old platter. You know how in Ethiopian food it's like platter style. And so I got something, I made sure to get something that wasn't spicy for her. Um, daddy and me, we love spices. So I wasn't worried about us. I just wanted to make sure that it was like, dad, dad loves lamb, but he doesn't, he's a, he's a fish connoisseur. And so I was really trying to get something that would be good for him to try. Cause I don't think he, at that point, I, I wasn't sure if he'd eat Ethiopian food before, but, um, I definitely wanted to try to make sure that there was something for him. And then my hubby, he's just picky. Ooh, he's picky and he really doesn't like to try new things. So I wanted to try to make sure that he got some good stuff too. And we ended up getting this uh, sampler platter with a bunch of everything. You know what I mean? Chickpeas, split peas, um, potatoes, and all of that stuff. And we came out and I'm sitting up here thinking, okay, y'all steer clear of the red stuff now. Steer clear of the red stuff. I start sampling everything and I'm just like, well, this stuff ain't hot. And it's hard for me to say this stuff ain't hot because something is not hot because I, it's, it takes a lot for me to say something is hot. Um, and I saw my mom and she was just eating, 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 just like eating everything. And I'm just like, wait a minute, mom, don't eat everything. She's like, no, this is good. I can eat all of this. And she was eating it and it was no problem. And I'm just like, oh, so it's really not hot. It's not just me being dramatic. The food just really isn't hot. And so the flavor was there. I was just disappointed that the food wasn't so great, but everybody enjoyed it, um, which was awesome. And so we were sitting at the riverfront eating at this Ethiopian restaurant. And, you know, not that 
I, I felt like a tourist because to be honest with you, I, I don't, li- you know, I don't live there anymore. Um, and haven't been back. Is it, has it been a decade? Maybe not quite a decade since I've been to the river. Well, I, to be honest with you, I don't ever remember going to the riverfront, even being in Kansas City. Like, I think we just went other places. We either hung out in the neighborhood or we went down to 18th and Brooklyn to Arthur Bryant's. And we were in the, the jazz district and the uh, the baseball museum, the Negro uh, League Baseball Museum. Like, we went to other things around the city, but I don't ever think, I don't recall ever spending any time in the riverfront, the, like, river bottom. And so this was a nice opportunity to go down there and spend some time to see what they had done since they had renovated. Um, not renovated, you know what I mean, revitalized the area. Because um, they must have done that. They must have revitalized Kansas City, like downtown Kansas City. Um maybe 15 years ago, something like that. But I wasn't around for that. Anyway, so it was just nice to to relax with hubby and my parents um, and just chill, you know, see a bunch of family and chill because Lord knows when I'm going to see all these family members again. Because, um, I mean, I, you know, we in Baltimore. So unless they come out to see us, it's just, hey, and, and Facebook messages, and, you know, social media messages and stuff like that. Anyway, so we're out here and... I don't know if I've ever mentioned this, but so mom and dad live on a farm and daddy for many years, obviously I've mentioned in the out of Africa series, uh, Glendora plantation that my daddy's people were sharecroppers way back in the day. And then a lot of the old folks on the land made sure that at the homestead, uh, made sure that daddy's generation had resources so they could get out and do whatever they wanted, go to school at Grambling, um, go to school at, um, what's the other one? Not Grandma, Grandma and Staten. What's the other one? What's the other big, you can't tell me. It's a big HBCU that they always have the battle of the bands. Southern, Southern. Anyway, so, you know, sent folks to Southern, sent folks to Grambling. And then when the next generation came through, they'd go to LSU and, and other universities and things like that. Or they would just move out of state completely um, and go here, there, and everywhere to school. But um, the original folks... Uh, out of, you know, if they weren't necessarily a part of the Great Migration, um, they were the tail end of the Great Migration. And um, and that was my daddy's generation. And so they originally grew up as farmers, but many of them turned away from farming. But dad, when he went came up to Kansas City, um, you know, lived like, what, 20 years or so free of the farm and then he was calling him back because at that point he'd got you know kids and he had a whole family um that he you know wanted to try to find a different way to support and also wanted to get us out the city because um there was a point where the crime was getting pretty bad where we were and mom and dad saw an opportunity so they uh, bought this farm outside of Kansas City and um moved us all out there and daddy began to raise cattle and daddy must have raised cattle for I can't call how long he raised cattle but he was raising cattle well into the time that I had moved to college and I was in college he was still raising cattle and he only recently stopped raising cattle because it's just too much heartache and pain for sometimes no gain to be honest with you because you know you raise cattle you buy a calf and you rate you you spend twelve hundred dollars with them, and then you know it's twelve hundred dollars, and then you feed you got to feed them, make sure the vet comes and checks on them, and then the idea is that 
you fat you, you buy a heifer which is a woman cow and they give uh you know they give birth they have babies and the babies is what you sell um and that's how you make your money and the thing about it is sometimes you will put $1200 and this is $1200 per per head of cattle and daddy always kept at least at least 20 cattle sometimes 30 so that's a lot of money um, that you put into one cow and that's a lot of money over time and the thing about it is should a coyote attack it should a bobcat attack that thing and it die should it get sick and die that's just $1,200 your initial payment plus all that time and energy that you put into them um, gone and so you have to have revenue and resources and you have to be okay with losing money in order to get a return on investment which is your return on investment is you being able to slaughter the cattle and turn them around for profit, the meat for profit, which you can get a lot of profit off of that or, or not slaughter it yourself, but just like sell it, knowing that someone else will slaughter it. Um, and I know this might be TMI for some folks and I apologize, but I'm just reminded of all the hard work that my daddy had to do. Um, and my mom was acting like a bookkeeper and it was hard work for just two people. You know what I mean? And of course, they had like a farming collective. So that, you know, there were a couple of farms that were backed up to each other. So they would share a veterinarian, they would look at look after each other's livestock and, and stuff like that. But after a while, people get old and people get tired. And mom and dad have a lot of land. And so that was all of that you had to cover. So dad began to be approached by government surveyors to turn his land into like a preserve, like no lie put a spring on there and, and preserve that and get paid to make the habitat a butterfly habitat. No joke. Like this was real. This was legit. And it makes sense because people are trying to scarf up every single inch of farmland to either build on it or turn it into like major crop for like a, or like a Cargill or not Cargill. What is it? Monsanto or something like that. Um, and so anyway, there's this conservation effort, especially in the heartland, there's a con- conservation effort to um, kind of save the land. And so some of the ways you do it is you, you turn the parts of the land, which is what daddy did, into like a butterfly habitat. Um, and then another part, you can still have cattle on it. It's just he rents out that part for someone else to put cattle on it. Because again, he don't want to do that anymore. He wants to do a new thing. Um and so, yeah, so, you know, got a big old farmstead and daddy is a gun collector as well. And when I tell you he has almost a thousand guns, I, I mean it, but he's a collector. Um, so it's not just guns for gun's sake, but there are types of guns and some are worth more than others. Um, some are antique some are like limited quality. It was one of those stocks that was limited quantity for whatever reason. Um, sentimental value. I even have a gun that he bought for me. I don't even know where that thing is. But anyway, um, I told him the first thing that I was going to do when the, the Lord called him and mama home, I was going to sell that collection and get buku dollars. So make sure that you keep those things up because I do intend to sell every last one of them. Um, Anyway, and so we joke about that every once in a while. But um, but yeah, I grew up with a healthy respect for guns. And I'm going somewhere with this. Um, hence the title. So you know where I'm going with this. So I grew up with a healthy respect for guns. Um, and 
understanding that they were instruments of death. There was, I was, I never minced words about that. They were instruments of death. Mom and dad never sugarcoated nothing from me. Um, and so when I told my husband before we were married, um, when I brought him home the first time, I think I've shared this before, but when I brought him home the first time, um, and I was like, I, I was just warning him. I was like, you know, you may find just a random gun in the house because daddy kind of runs out of space. Um, for his guns and he either runs out of space or he just likes to have something close by just in case he wants to scare somebody like scare is in case they're on a homestead because again they're out in the country they don't have their nearest neighbors like over a mile away so it's kind of it is a protection thing for bruce uh for for um my, my um for my family um so anyway i was like don't be alarmed if you see something just you know just be cool just be cool about it um, and they're put up, of course, and they don't have, they're not loaded, but nevertheless, you know, some, a, a person could be startled. Um, and so anyway, so I told hubby that before he was hubby and then he came home and then he looked me in the face and was like, you weren't kidding. And I was like, duh, get to know, get to know my father. You'll, you'll, you'll understand. And so anyway, they bond over just talking about t- collections, you know, things to collect and, and their worth and, and. You know, the, the, how amazed my, my husband never ceases to be amazed about how much a person will pay for something that they really want. And guns are no obsession, upset, uh, uh, exception. If somebody really wants that gun, no matter if it means nothing to you, they're going to, they're going to pay whatever to get that from you. So, um, anyway, so yeah, so I grew up with a healthy understanding, a healthy fear, a healthy respect for guns and understanding that they're instruments of death and not to be played around with. And I can just remember, you know, going to college and talking to folks and and even, you know, moving around as I've done, talking to people who talked about guns like they, for me, in not a respectful way, like a really flippant way. You know what I mean? Like, oh, well, I'll just... I'll just take somebody's life. You know, if they, they try to harm me, I'll just take it. And I'm like, do you understand what you're saying? Like, I don't think you really get, like, I guess it, to me, it's the way people talk about guns and things kind of sounds cartoonish. Um, because you really don't understand the psychological impact of you shooting a person, let alone shooting someone to death, whether on accident or you meant to because you were, whether on accident, but you were aiming to try to scare them or whatever, or you intended to do it because you were really angry. I don't think people truly understand unless you have no empathy. I I don't, I don't think truly people truly have a healthy fear of guns like they, like they should. Um, but that's our, that's our culture, I think. And so one of the, uh, one of the reasons why I end up watching the so I'm, I'm fascinated by things that happen in real life. I'm also ha- fascinated by culture, right? Um, and, and the way that countries shape their culture and how the culture responds to certain situations, right? Um, and then I think I'd done a whole episode on, uh, there, it was an HBO documentary about America, America, it was like American crime or something like that, but it was all about America's violent past. Are, are the Amer- the United States violent beginning and it's violent continuing, right? Um, and as it relates to the media, and I cannot remember the name, like the media has been there the entire time kind of documenting it. 
Um, and I cannot remember the name of the documentary. I think it's American Gun. It's American Violence. American Violence or something like that. It was an old, like, 1995 documentary. But I remember talking about it in one of these episodes. And anyway, um, talking about the advent of the gun when the after the war, when everyone was able, and in the war I'm talking about, I guess the Civil War. When was it? Where I think the Civil War was after the Civil War, regular degular people were able to have handguns, and when regular degular people were able to have handguns, and then you put that match that with a bunch of people um, rough and wild out on the frontier, and the frontier being the West and the mid, uh, the Midwest and the West, um, and then you add alcohol to it, that and and testosterone and stuff like that. Um, you begin to, well, and anyway, you begin to have high spikes of crime in the 1800s post, um, 1865. And, um, and there was, I think the documentary that I was watching again, this 1995 mid nineties HBO doc was basically saying that yes, crime was high before folks were able to get their hands on guns. Um, as individuals, but after crime was real high, gun violence was real high. And I know we like to focus on gun violence these days in the inner city. And we like to make that, that wonderful just statement that, you know, black on black crime is, is a terrible problem, but you're totally missing the fact that most crime in communities is intra community, meaning that Asian folks kill Asian folks, black folks kill black folks, white folks kill white folks. And it's only when it's extra uh, communal, it's outside of the community where we make a big deal out of it, uh, or not a big deal out of it, but that it catches our eye. Um, but that, you know, it's you're, you tend to have beef with the people that you're living with in community, and you tend to be in community with your same culture. That's kind of the way that the United States have kind of created itself, segregated itself. Um, and so anyway, so, you know, thinking about that conversation, I was drawn to, for some reason, even though this show had probably been on my recommendation list forever on Netflix, I was drawn to it probably right around the time that we were starting to get more attention yet again on police violence against an unarmed person or someone who wasn't posing a threat um, to them, a a physical threat to them. Um, Anyway, and so I was drawn to the uh, Trial by Media series. And then I started scrolling through and I think, what was it? Episode two caught my eye. Um, And episode two was the, the Subway Vigilante. And I remember hearing about the subway vigilante before because again I'm a I say this almost every episode at this point but I love watching documentaries love watching documentaries and so I watched I, I I've come across that story before where from what I knew about it this white guy shot shot these teenagers because they had beat him up and he shot him on the train and it polarized a, a community because on the one hand he shot these kids and they didn't have a gun. But on the other hand, 
they beat again this was this was me gleaning what happened before I actually looked into what happened and before I actually watched this episode but it was uh so on the one hand it was like yeah he he was you know he shot an un, uh, all these unarmed teenagers but then there was another piece that was that was like well he shot these unarmed teenagers because they had been harassing him um and he didn't want to be harassed anymore and so um yeah, he got the gun as protection so that he wouldn't be harassed anymore. But I just remember it being wild because people lauded him as a hero, basically because it was in the 80s. It was a time where crime was rampant um, due to a lot of reasons, a lot of poor infrastructure reasons, which is why crime is ever rampant, because it's never just because bad people are bad people, but that it, there's always a symptom. There's, al- there's, al- there's always a reason for like the crime itself is a symptom of an underlying condition and at the time what we know is that the underlying condition was huge economic disparities huge you know whole communities being being decimated because the factories had moved out of the area taking those jobs then you had um just poor working conditions poor living conditions poor health care poor response to city and emergency you know support and all of that stuff and so you you had a sense from what I looked at it at um, documentaries and things you had a sense that the late 70s early 80s the the New York New York City was like a cesspool um, but again there's always a reason for the why or there's always a why for the what um, and so but anyway yeah that what that's what I knew of the story that this white guy had been bullied and he got a gun because he was tired of being bullied and that he was being bullied by these teenagers and even though they were teenagers they were big scary teenagers and that was the story that I'd heard now did I believe that story at the time I don't know I just remember that it was something that I acknowledged to be something that happened but I never I don't know that I ever made an opinion about that something that happened and so I saw this episode on trial by media and I wanted to watch it because I also wanted to understand the part that the media played in talking about the case and certainly when I got into the episode which was like maybe 45 minutes 50 minutes best um certainly the media did as it does now play a role in how the whole thing was reported or how how the United folks impression of what happened um their impression of the kids that were attacked um excuse me, and the, their impression of the, the subway vigilante that started one way and then certainly changed because that's what, you know, the media does. But anyway, um, it was a very interesting case and actually sadder than I thought it was. Because again, I only knew just the bare, the basics that this white guy shot up these teenagers. I didn't realize all of the moving pieces to it. And so when I get in it into the next segment, I'll talk about those moving pieces um, and kind of go from there. But yeah, Subway Vigilante. Okay, so I'm actually recording this portion back in Baltimore. Um, uh, Jesus was just too loud my family was too loud um I got distracted I took naps and all of that stuff so I did record a thing but I didn't like it because it just felt 
lazy. Do you know what I mean? So even for me, um, so, um, I'm recording now back in Baltimore and I will just say that before I get started, I have always thought, and I will forever maintain that Baltimore in the morning, especially in the summertime smells like old Bay. I, it smells like old Bay to me right now. I'm recording in the morning. Um, and it's during the week and we have the windows open because we didn't really need to turn on the window unit um, because the morning breeze, again, we're by a popular attraction here in Baltimore. Um, and the breeze off of this waterway here is, is real nice, but I promise you, it smells like Obey. And I love it. I love it. Anyway, y'all might think I'm, I'm making things up, but I have always maintained that Baltimore in the summertime, for sure, smells like Obey. Anyway, um, beautiful smell. Anyway, um, so, um, all right, so getting down to the particulars. So I looked this case up, and it's, it's so interesting because it was 35 years ago. 35 years ago, or actually it'll be 36 years um, on, on, in December, but December 22nd, 1984, Bernard Getz, um, Bernard, oh girl, I didn't lost my little, my little notes. Okay. Okay. I'm back. I'm back. So Bernard Getz, who was a programmer, basically, um, like a small time computer programmer, um, out of Concord, Connecticut, who did, I guess he did work. He had clients. He either worked for, um, worked with a large firm in the city. And so he would go to Manhattan, um, travel to Manhattan via train. Anyway, so he was on the train, December 22nd, 1984. And have him tell it and certainly how it came out. Remember, he was um, threatened, attacked, by, um, hold on, let me get their names, Barry Allen, Troy Canty, Daryl Kaby, and James Ras- Ramsour. I think it's Ramsour. Anyway, and so in an effort to defend himself, he pulled a uh, weapon, and it was a Smithson, Smithson, Smith & Wesson Model 38. So what do they call it, 38 Special? Whatever, I just, daddy has a couple. Cause again, he's a collector, but it's like a special gun. It's not like just a regular, regular gun. It's like special. And he's got like a little um, certification card with it. Anyway, um, so he pulls out the gun and he shoots these teenagers. Again, teenage boys. And we don't know that it was Bernard Getz who shot them. What initially happened was there, the boys were obviously found on the train, scattered across the car, basically. And initially, the news media and the community were, well, the news media was, was relaying the outrage that the community had, at least the black and brown community had, because they wanted to know who did this, who shot these boys. And automatically, cries of racism and, obviously, cries of racism uh, called out were, were called out um, because you know New York is not the most liberal place in the whole wide world I know people would love for you to think that but let's be real there's some terrible people 
lurking around, um, I can't, I'm about to say Baltimore, lurking around New York, even in the 80s. And anyway, I won't go into all of those, the reasons why um, New York is not a super liberal bastion like many people think it is. Um, anyway, but yeah, so initially the cries were like, who has attacked these boys? Let's figure out who has done it. Was this a racially motivated sort of thing? Or was this, who's, who attacked these boys? Who attacked these boys who had no weapon on them themselves? They had, or at least they had no gun on them themselves. Who shot these boys down? And it wasn't very long after the incident. I think if I'm getting it correct, but you can, you can look into the, your, this yourself. I think it was a matter of days, maybe even a week or something like that. It wasn't very long before in Concord, New Hampshire, um, Bernard Getz walks into his local police station and begins to, he turns himself in saying that he is what the media had dubbed the subway. Uh, no, the, no, at the time they hadn't, they hadn't dubbed him the subway vigilante. They were just saying this guy that, this person that, and I don't even think they said person. I think they were, they were saying it was a guy shot these boys. And anyway, he goes into the Concord police station and confesses, I'm the person that shot those boys in Manhattan. And I'm gonna tell you why. And so obviously immediately, the, the minute the news media gets a hold to him, then they start calling him the vigilante because aspects, uh, when he was recounting his story about what happened, um, to when he starts to recant his story about what happened and what led to the issue, it was recorded as confessions are recorded um, in police stations um, and in police interviews. And so anyway, so he records that he was trying to protect himself. Um, Yeah, basically he, the the story was that these boys, it was clear that these boys were about to mean him harm. Um, He had been victimized before, so he knew what time it was. And so he was going to he was trying, he was simply trying to defend himself and in defending himself, he shot those boys and he, in the, in the tape, he's all over the place. But what gets the sentiment that gets leaked is, well, yeah, he shot these boys, but he was defending himself. And so the media dubs him as subway vigilante. And it was immediately kind of picked up as one of these not feel good stories, but one of these stories, these justice stories that we love to have saying, you know, and again, what is a vigilante? A vigilante is someone who takes, who takes matters into their own hands to seek justice. Obviously what we know is the problem with vigilanteism is that your justice, it might not be the, the justice. And that's certainly the issue that we have with police and certainly all these Karens and people who are calling the police on black and brown people because uh, what can possibly happen because their sense of justice is that I want my way right now. And that's justice to me, not let's right this wrong or let's make weigh the merits of this wrong to ensure that such a thing needs to be need Like it needs to be escalated. Right? So that's the problem with, with vigilanteism. It's, it's all accord. The, the justice is in the eye of the beholder, but at the time that phrase and certainly his actions were, celebrated even among black folk in New York, um, largely because there was this sentiment that New York, as I had mentioned in the intro, New York was a cesspool full of crime and decay and lawlessness and someone, someone needed to stand up. Someone did and it was just ironic that in this moment, 
black and brown people were celebrating um, Getz for taking a stand in this very specific way. Now let's stop and think about this. Getz had a gun, Getz shot these people and severely, seriously harmed them. What we know is that Canty was paralyzed. He was a paraplegic and he had brain damage. Uh, or KB, not Canty, KB. Daryl KB uh, was shot, paralyzed, and had severe brain damage and spent many, many years, uh, a lot of time rather, a lot of time in and out of hospitals, right? Um, whereas the other, the other boys had other injuries as well. And so initially, you know, he was made his very quickly. And I think this is, a, this is where the media comes in. And certainly in the 80s and 90s, you know, and I've talked about this in some of the other cases that I've mentioned, um, true crime that I've talked about. But like the media is coming into its own in terms of recognizing, you know, this is a scoop and we can, we can really be on the front end of something. We could really be telling a story in a way that we've never told it before. And so in this moment, the story was, well, let's hear from a guy who would not be a victim. And isn't that a good story to tell? And so the episode does a really good job of kind of laying out the foundation as to why the media not why the media made this such a big story, but how they made it such a big story, simply by dubbing him a vigilante and then instantly turning the, uh, getting the public to be in favor of his actions. And certainly there was, there was lots of favor for what he did. He, he garnered a lot of favor and a lot of sympathy for what he did. Because if you look at Bernard Gates in 19, or Bernard, Bernard Getz, Bernard Getz in 1984, he looked like what all of those 80s films, those problematic 80s films, depict a quote-unquote nerd to look like. He looked very frail, fragile, looked like you could, look like somebody could take advantage of him at any point. And so if people were like, see, see this person who most people would take advantage of, which is kind of shady, right? It's shady to assume by someone's appearance that they're a punk. But nevertheless, that's what they were doing in lauding his, his actions. Um, or applauding his actions. They were saying, see, look, this punk decided that he was going to defend himself. And, and, and now the big bad monster got there, got what was coming to him. Um, and certainly this whole get back, this whole get back culture has been a part of American culture from the very beginning, right? Get yours, get your get back. Uh, this person needs to get what's coming to them. Punishment, 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 right? Um, for punishment's sake, really. And so, yeah, so he makes the TV circuits and he, he, the more he talks initially, the more people enjoy hearing him and enjoy celebrating him. And of course, there's a trial that comes up um, in 85. And just to fast forward uh, ahead, just real quick, there were two trials, actually. The first trial uh, did not end in a way that the prosecution wanted. So they got, they went after him again, um, with a little bit of time on this time. And I think they went to, in 86, they went to a second trial. And then that's when things changed. But in the first trial, Bernard Getz, even though he was a software engineer, you would think that he would have some disposable income. He was modestly, he was a poor man for the most part. He didn't really have a lot of assets. Um, so, because he had gotten so much media attention, it didn't matter that he didn't have a lot of money to hire an attorney because he certainly caught the attention of the NRA. 
Why did he catch the attention of the NRA? Well, it simply wasn't just because he grabbed a gun in order to defend himself, but it was that the NRA was interested in proving a point, and I think the show does this very well. It wasn't just because they wanted to support um, Bernard Getz. It's because, like the media, the NRA wanted to use Bernard Getz. And actually, if, if this show told me anything, shared anything with me, it wasn't that Bernard Getz is necessarily a victim, but that Bernard Getz was very much a pawn who also had a superiority complex and an inferiority complex too, in a, in a kind of like a weird way. Um, definitely someone who had probably been pushed around for a long time and wanted to get his get back. Um, and he decided to get his get back on some teenagers, which come on, dude, like anyway, but that's neither here nor there. So in this moment, and ahead of the first trial, the NRA reaches out to him, not just to support him because they believed that he needed support, but that they were trying to grandstand and make a point. At the time, in the city of New York, it was illegal to hold, to, to um, own a gun. You couldn't get a license for a gun in the city of New York. And what we know is that Bernard Getz, and it came out in trial, that Bernard Getz had tried several times to get a license to carry a gun because he had been attacked and brutally beaten um, in an, a prior incident on the train. Again, he's out of Concord, but he travels often to New York um, to do business. Um, and anyway, so he had been attacked and robbed once before. And so he had tried to get a gun license, but he was not able to secure one because they kept denying him. And the NRA decided to use this moment to defend him and saying, well, he, because the burden of proof on the defense is, is it, there is no burden of proof. The burden of proof is on the uh, prosecution, which means the prosecution, if you're going for manslaughter or if you're if you're going for um what is it first degree murder you have to prove without reasonable doubt that the person that you're trying to convict intended to murder the person that they that ended up being murdered or attempted murder they if you want you need to you have to prove without a, without a reasonable doubt that the person that you want to convict of attempted murder meant to kill them was attempting to kill them and certainly i think one of the crimes one of the charges that Bernard Getz came up against was attempted murder, I believe. Um, because while none of the boys died, they certainly did have serious injuries. And again, what we know is that um, KB was paralyzed and had brain damage as a result of the incident. And so that the burden of proof was on the prosecution to prove that Getz intended to, was attempting to murder them. Um, and so the, however, the defense's strategy, and again, the lawyer that came to guess his aides was supported by, funded by, I think he's actually the, a lawyer with the NRA. His whole point was to make it all about the fact that to, to, to just poke holes in the fact that get, uh, that gets intended to, um, intended to attempted to murder them, number one, and also just establishing the fact that Bernard Getz was weak and he didn't want to be a victim anymore. 
Um, and that the only way for him not to be a victim in this big, bad city was for him to own a gun. And then he made it more about the fact that so in this lawless city, in this city where police officers are walking off the job because there's not enough money in it and there's certainly not enough protection in it. Um, and that landlords are burning their own buildings down and that there seems to be no support for even the people who live here. Not even in the communities where these these thugs, as there's the language that a lot of folks love to use, the these thugs don't even have have uh, respect for the people that li- come from their own communities. You expect you expect Bernard Getz, who's not even from here, to not try to defend himself in the best way possible. And it's not about when you're owning a gun. It's not about you taking a person's life. It's about you protecting yourself against someone taking your life. And he apparently did a really, really great job of arguing that. And in the middle of that trial, again, there was more, there was more um, emphasis on the fact that Bernard Gaby, uh, Bernard Getz is like many of us who are sick and tired of the cesspool that New York has become and the, the crime and the victimization that is, or at least the, the crime that is, a, that is taking place in the city. And even at the time there was, I think it was the NRA that released this pamphlet, um, basically safety tips for any tr- tourist who was going to New York saying, well, if you, go, if you must come here, these are the things that you need to do to protect yourself. And, but it wasn't out of the kindness of their heart that they were doing this. They were trying to prove a point. It was all about a, uh, what is it, hearts and mind campaign that we were waging against um, the leaders that be, right? Because that's what political machines do. And the NRA is certainly a political machine. Anyway, so, so yeah, so again, the defense did a really great job, at least in that first trial, of painting Bernard Getz as someone who no longer wanted to be a victim. And it was less about the harm that he inflicted on these boys and more about him trying not to make sure that there was harm coming to him. After all, Bernard said that he was expecting them to attack him. They were making motions as if they were going to attack him. And the defensive side was like, and certainly the family of these boys and a lot of the supporters of these boys, including Al Sharpton and all the folks who come to the aid of black folks, uh, black folks defense in times like this, um, were like, this is racially motivated. This is racially motivated. It's not as if you intentionally meant to attack those boys. They didn't attack you. That was the argument for the prosecution. You thought they were going to attack you, but they didn't. And the thing about it is, it's kind of a crappy argument. It's, it's kind of a crappy argument because in my opinion, it wasn't that. So let me just lay out, let me just say it. So the prosecution was like, well, you basically, they didn't attack you, but you attacked them. And in attacking them, you severely injured one of them for sure. And you've injured them all, but you severely altered one of them, one of their lives. And so for that, you deserve to go to prison. And you had a gun without a license. Um, so you, you just, you know, that was their defense. And I think that was a terrible strategy because yes, that is a point, but I don't know that that's the point, but cause my, my point is it's, you literally used a gun to shoot someone. You didn't know if they had a gun or not, but you know, you had a gun. And my thing is at any point you didn't just, again, what I said, what I say about my father, it's. For him, it's not gun use necessarily always to protect himself, when certainly he does have um, a gun that he carries for protection. 
but that it's more about scaring someone because half the time seeing the gun is scary enough. It's enough to scare up a ne'er do well away, right? Or at least let them know you ain't playing. My thing is the step that you took to actually fire upon these boys, not one, but all of these boys and that you hit every last one of them to me showed that the intent and the, the intent to inflict harm. Cause again, if you just trying to defend yourself and trying to get away, why not just shoot a couple rounds and then, and then leave the car? No, that's not what happened. And certainly so that, but that wasn't what, that wasn't what the defense or the prosecution successfully argued. Um, they thought that the merits of their case were strong enough because he g- gets shot and again, this is just me playing Monday morning quarterback, but, uh, and I'm not even a lawyer. I'm not even trained to be a lawyer, but anyway, this is just me parsing out the facts of the case as they were presented in the show. And then certainly as they're, they're presented on, um, as they're presented on online, but certainly someone with more expertise, legal knowledge, um, and knowledge of the time frame could have a better sense of what this case really meant, or at least the issues with the prosecution's case but it just seemed to me that they were arguing the wrong point and they were thinking that that point was strong enough but clearly with the sentiment of the time and certainly the time well the city and the the economy and everything like that I just think that they were a little naive in assuming that everyone would just agree with their position without going any further and so what ends up happening is uh, the very first trial, Bernard gets gets probation, and he only gets, yeah, he gets probation for the gun charge. That's it, right? No, no jail time. And of course, there's outrage, right? Because now he's walking free, and Kaby's not even walking. Daryl, excuse me, Daryl Kaby can't even walk because of what you did, right? But here's the twist. In the time that it took for the trial to happen, which was essentially a year later, right? Almost a year later. um, Bernard Getz kept talking, kept talking. And so the the person in him keeping, in him continuing to talk, you get to hear more of his ideology. And while he swears up and down, he's not racist and he's not this and he's not all these negative things. He certainly sounds like a raging Number one, he sounds like someone who's egotistical, someone who is racist and someone who is, um, what do you call it? What do you call it? Classist. Yes, very classist. Um, he said a lot of classist things about, you know, pe- poor people and things like that. So, which is ironic because he was like two snaps from being poor himself. Um, anyway, and that was certainly a part of his defense um, in a third trial that came up. Um, a civil trial when he was being sued by the uh, Daryl Cabe's family. Anyway, um, but yeah, but in that time, he had really kept talking. And I remember in the episode, the NRA um, attorney who represented him wanted nothing more than for Bernard Getz to shut up and not say Nathan Nathaniel III to, on, on, in TV, on radio, to nobody, because the more he talked, the more damning the more damage he made to his own case, right? And so, yes, he walked, he skated on that first case, but by that time, public opinion began to change. And so there was another trial um, that was 
brought up against against him only this time now everybody has changed um they've changed their tune in turn the public opinion and led by the the newspaper have changed their tune now that remember that interview that um i mentioned that he had done in the concord uh police station well now the whole interview had leaked on i believe it was primetime tv and you hear at the moment where he turns himself in or at least the state of mind he was in he was belligerent he was all over the place he was talking about he sounded like a little man he sounded like he had a little man's complex basically you ever talk to somebody who was like who's like got ideas of grandeur saying well we need to do this and i'm sick and tired of all of this and all of that stuff right um he sounded like somebody who was a vigilante in the true sense of the word, not the um, romantic version of it, but the true version where he's going to dictate what justice is and he's going to seek it out. And he's going to make sure that those that need to meet justice meet it. Um, and so then, and I don't know why this doesn't come out clearly in the first trial, but when we watch, when everyone was exposed to the video, of the taped confession uh, of Getz at the Concord police station, they hear that not only did the boys not attack them, not attack him, but he was seeking out someone. He was seeking out boys just like him because he wanted to prove a point. He wanted to get his get back. Remember, he had been attacked brutally before on the train. And so basically he got this gun because he wanted to get his get back. Not that he never wanted to be a victim again. That wasn't it. It wasn't that he wanted, he didn't want to be a victim again. He wanted to victimize someone else who thought they were big and bad. And he said as much in the taped confession. And you, and, and so not only did they not attack them, but basically they were mocking him, right? Which teenagers are jerks. They say dumb things. They're rowdy. Sometimes they're rude. Um, and I have, I have heard teenagers, as you have as, you, as well, just be disrespectful, say weird things, um, and act big and bad, but they're all talk, right? And some of them are actually about that action, but like up until they are, they just look like some punks. Some, some, and when I'm using this phrase, I'm saying it as, as some folks who are just kind of you trying to act like you hard, but you really, you really cowardly, right? You really not about that life. You just want to flex. You woofing. You you giving out wolf tickets. You ain't, you have no intention of following up. You just trying to look the part, but you ain't you ain't you ain't got it. Anyway, so he was looking. He was looking for an opportunity to get his get back from being pummeled earlier, right? In a previous incident, and so these boys, who. It came out in the first trial and certainly came out leading up to the first trial that, that some of them had petty crimes, petty pickpocketing charges on them. And so you know how the, our media even today loves to do. They love saying, oh, well, or bringing up a person's criminal background as a reason or justification for them being a victim or a justification for whatever they got coming to them. And so in this instance, the media said, well, these boys were no angel. These boys were no angel and they, you know, they got, they put themselves in a place to get God. And Bernard is a little, you know, he's a little on edge, but they put him on edge. And then by the second trial, because after the tape comes out, you realize, oh no, these boys were being, bo these boys were being hard-headed boys. 
but they hadn't done anything and they actually were in, they were just it basically in this moment for Bernard Getz because not only did Bernard Getz shoot them methodically, but there was even in his own, by his own admission, he had, he had gone, hovered over one of them and said, oh, you look okay. Here's another for your, here's, here's another. And I guess in that moment, what he was saying is, you look like you're not too badly hurt by me shooting you. Let me shoot you again so you can really be hurt. And this is what he said in his confession. This is what, this is what he said on the tape. And you're like, what is, what, really? This is, you, and this is, now mind you, this wasn't immediately after the subway incident. This was days after, this was days up to a week after the incident happened. So he's had time to ruminate and reflect on the incident that happened. And in that time, he decided that he wanted to tell the whole thing, knowing that him saying the whole, his whole truth, meaning that exposing the fact that he intended to shoot the mess out of them. Because certainly in the moment, he, he, in the interview, he said, the only reason why I stopped shooting them is because I ran out of bullets. If I had more bullets, I'd have continued firing. That doesn't sound like defense. That isn't defense. That sounds like, in, that sounds intentional. It sounds intentional. It sounds like you, you knew what you were doing and you intend, that sounds like uh, attempted murder is what it sounds like, right? And so by the time, so this comes out and public opinion has changed. The city is moving away from well, they're recognizing at least in the news media and certainly um, I think at this time the Central Park Five had come out and not come out, but there's certainly some talk about it. And so the, the conversation about crime and punishment and certainly the sentiment about the subway vigilante had changed. And so it wasn't so much, oh, that we're applauding you now. So now it's like, ooh, you're dirty and I don't want to be associated with you because you intended to shoot these people. You weren't being a victim. You were victimizing. And so the second trial comes along and he still does not get convicted of attempted murder or anything like that, but he does get convicted on the gun charges. And so he has, what, nine months or something like that, not quite a full year um, conviction where he has to have a sentence. He's sentenced to jail to prison for nine months for the gun charge for having a gun without um without a permit in the city of new york and so justice still not served so a couple of years later the kb family take him to civil court because they can no longer try him um for attempted murder anymore because that's double jeopardy or something like that i guess they they didn't feel like they could try him again because he had already had a sentence um, I guess so they take him to civil court for uh, damages related to the injuries that KB sustained in the attack and so they end up victorious because they put him on the stand and he starts talking again and in the civil court the burden of proof on the 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 burden of proof is what is it 50% plus one or something like that it's like you just have to you don't have to prove without a reasonable doubt that this person is liable. You just have to prove more than 50%, more than half. <laughs> Mostly, you have to prove, yeah, it's like more than, than a little, more than a little. I don't have the right words, but you know what I'm talking about. You have to 
I don't even know the terminology, but basically it's less of a per- burden of proof in a civil court um, when you're trying to reach a judgment. And anyway, his own words damned him. He actually got on st- uh, on the stand and he was he was not he was unrepentant um, and did what he normally does. And he um, dug himself into a hole. And of course, he was ended up um, having to pay a judgment. Unfortunately, the KB family, Daryl KB and his family have not seen a dime of the judgment. They were awarded over like millions of dollars, like, yeah, over millions of dollars. But Getz was always broke. He was always poor and he's poor until this day. Um, And so they haven't seen a dime of that money because he doesn't have it. Um, And so anyway, so the other part of this is he's alive and well and living in Manhattan um, today doing what he's always been doing, a software engineer, doing his due. You know what I mean? 72 years old, probably getting to be getting ready to be 73 at this point, living life, um, still having attacked those four boys on a subway back in 1984. Um, and anyway, so here's the other piece of this. So remember how I said that the country was fascinated with law and order, or at the very least they were, they were fascinated with the idea that New York was a cesspool. There was a whole vigilante group, and that's the other piece that I forgot to mention. There was a whole vigilante group called the Guardian Angels. They wore red berets and they wore red jackets. And there were black people a part of their group. There were brown people a part of their group, white folks too, um, who were sub- who were patrolling the subways and neighborhoods because they didn't think the police were doing an adequate enough job protecting the people. And they had deputized themselves basically, not deputized themselves, but they basically took it upon themselves to, to arrest, to, to perform citizens' arrest on folks and to turn them into police because there weren't enough police on the beat and they weren't protecting the communities so they wanted to protect the communities and on the face of it that sounds like community policing that sounds like a neighborhood taking care of their own right but I've never seen a documentary where it talks about those folks as as being problematic but it is problematic when they were backing and supporting Getz at both trials they were backing and supporting Getz which lets me know all I need to know about that group, because yeah, you guys are deciding what is truth, what is justice. And especially looking at it from 2020 time for a, to- a lens and knowing that in that show, they even had one of the very prominent leaders who actually was a part of the, the group or part of the team that supported Getz when he would go back and forth to, to, to um, trial. Not only support his actions, but you know, still kind of support him even unto this day, right? And talk about that case and look back on it and kind of be like, oh, well, that thing did happen. As if it's not a a complete travesty and tragedy that those four boys' lives were changed forever. One for sure was changed forever. Not because of anything they absolutely did, but the perception about what they were gonna do. And I know if you're listening to this, some, some folks are like, but like, wouldn't you rather get somebody before they get you? And to my point, it's just like, we can't live our life like that. We can't, that's, that's exactly what the Karens and the, and these, all of these white folks that are calling the police on black folks now, that's what they're assuming. They're assuming something. Many of them are assuming that you're going to hurt them or 
that there's danger that isn't there. And I'm not saying that they probably wouldn't have tried to rob him. But what I'm saying is you literally pulled a gun on people. And not only did you pull it, but then you pulled the trigger. That's a step. That's a, that's a step. That's an extra step. That's intent to me. That's, in, that's intent. You meant to do that. And, and he said that he meant to do it. He intended to shoot the crap out of them. And if he didn't run out of bullets, he'd have been, he continued shooting. And so how do you, how do you justify that? How do you justify or how do you walk away from that sort of statement and think anything else other than, dag, that's messed up and you ought to serve time for that crime that you did, not just the gun charge, but for actually attempting to murder these boys. Now, would this trial come out differently today? I don't know. I would hope so. But what we know is that George Zimmerman wasn't convicted. George Zimmerman got washed by uh, Trayvon Martin. He got beat. Remember? Remember that case? He was profiling him because he was he deputized himself. Basically, he was going to be the cop on patrol. And he saw this boy that was walking in the neighborhood who looked like to him not to be vigil. He was a vigilante. Looked for looked to him to not be in the right place. He began harassing him. Trayvon Martin began to get his beat him because come on these folks you you know it these folks get all off in your face and they talk big and bad but they can't back nothing up how you in my face and you can't fight why are you in my face if you're not in ready to fight right and i'm not saying that that's right but i understand why trayvon martin defended himself to get this punk up off him but what does this punk do he goes and gets a gun and shoots trayvon martin to death come on it's the same thing done over, right? He went, Trayvon, uh, um, just like with the subway, just Bernard Getz went looking for trouble just like uh, George Zimmerman went looking for trouble. It's not different. And both of them are walking around living today. Living free today. It's the same thing done over. And that's why our relationship with crime and punishment is so doggone weird. Our relationship with guns is weird too. It's And again, I just don't think we don't have a respect for life. And I'm not talking, I'm a person who I respect life, but I also respect a person's choice to either end it themselves or to not be pregnant. And that's just the cold hard facts. I don't care how anybody feels about that. Um, it's, it, that's it. And so how can you then, there's a whole segment of my religious community where they're like super pro-choice right? You protect the babies, but then they're for the, the death penalty, which is the dumbest th- stuff I ever heard. They're for the death penalty. And they're all about, they're all about gun, vi- they're all about gun violence as a means to protect your home and your property and your person. But it's always property first, person second, which is why I cannot stand Killer Mike. And I wish he would take his mic away. I wish somebody would take his mic away and stop giving him a platform because he's dumb. Because he, he, him and T.I.B. repeating that same dumb stuff, property and person. Who in the heck puts property over people? But my point is, there's a whole segment of folks who are supposedly a part of my faith who say, who, who believe in violence as a, mean of, as, a, as a means of protection. And my thing is like, do you even know what you're saying? Do you even understand what you're saying for real? Like truly, do you know what you're saying? Do you know that what you're saying is antithetical to what you believe? 
that you sh- that we believe that you and many religions believe that you should not have the power to take a person's life. You do not have the power of life and death. Yet that's what we give each other. That's what we that's where a lot of these folks are marching. Anyway, I'm on my soapbox, but my, I guess my point is uh, the, the American relationship with crime and punishment, the American relationship with death is morbid and, and gross. And the fact that the subway vigilante happened three years ago, or now 35 years ago, about to be 36, and something similar happens in the 2000s, in the middle 2000s, in the 2020s, let's be real. And we still ain't figured it out yet. Just lets me know that we just have a sick fascination with crime and punishment and who gets to distribute punishment and justice. A sick fascination with it. And yeah, I think the media, getting back to the point about the role the media plays in it, they just as complicit as all those Monday morning quarterbacks, you're not reporting the news. In many cases, they're reporting the sentiment of folks about a situation. And even times they're shaping it. And I understand it's a precarious situation that you're in as a reporter, because it's hard for you not to be biased. It's hard for you to be objective. But that's what we absolutely need, because the, the fact remains, why aren't the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, marches that are still happening on a daily basis across the country? Why is that not making news? We know that they're happening. I know that they're happening um, on St. Paul. They're coming across St. Paul almost every day these days in Baltimore. That ain't on the news. Other things are on the news. Coronavirus, which is something that should be on the news, is the dominant story, right? Elections are the dominant story. The next, the, the thing that, the next dumb thing that Trump tweeted is on the news, right? So the role that I appreciate this series, Trial by Media, because that's exactly what it is. And I love that the it, it's in this instance what the show did was did not put. There's a conversation about putting our society in uh, on trial. And actually, I do that every once in a while in these shows. Certainly, I just did it in on my little soapbox uh, thing here. But then but then what this show is doing is putting the media and the way that the media shaped our opinion, the public opinion about a given situation or a given instance on trial um, in, in an interesting way for me. And in this mo- in the, this one, I guess the only my only real takeaway is the fact that this man is 72 years old, still living in Manhattan, still having not truly served uh, for the crime, been punished for the crime that he committed, largely because he's a white male and a lot of people identified with him. And that crimes like this continue to happen regularly. And yeah, so overall, um. I can't say that I love this episode. I will say that it reminded me to think a little bit differently. So it reminded me of the parallels that still exist today with that, with that case. Um, and it also kind of reminded me that you do need to have multiple sources of information. You do need to form your own opinion and we do need to hold leadership accountable in every way. And we do need to protect our kids even kids that we consider knuckleheads, nobody deserves to be gunned down on a train because you felt they were going to rob you. Anyway, um, yeah, so there's another episode that I watched that 
maybe I'll talk about, but it's the, 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 not Ricky Lake, but Jenny, Jenny Jones. It was about Jenny Jones in a TV show that she hosted. Um, I think it was like early nineties, 93, something like that, where it was one of those, you know how you used to watch like Jerry or whatever, Jerry Springer. And they would have these episodes where, you know, there would be this big reveal, like two people who were either family members or who were romantically linked or best friends or whatever would come on this, uh, be brought onto the show. And then there'd be this big reveal that, you know, something else is afoot, something, some, this shocking reveal, right? And so the Jenny, for the Jenny Jones show, um, this guy and this girl who were very good friends were brought, uh, this, these, the guy and the girl brought on another mutual, a mutual friend of theirs. And they were going to tell him something very secret. They were, like they were going to share a, a secret with him. And it was supposed to be a secret crush episode. And in this episode, um, they begin to ask, um, the guy that was brought on f- with the two friends, they began to ask the main subject. So do you know who might have a crush on you? And, um, or something like that. So basically what ended up happening was the guy and the girl that brought the guy on, the guy thought the girl had a crush on him, but it was actually the guy who had a crush on him. The guy was gay. He knew the guy was gay. Um, and he looked visibly uncomfortable on the show. Um, let's, uh, let me just do this to make it easier. If you don't know what this episode was all about. So girl, let's call her Robin, the boy who was also on the show. Let's call him Bill. And then John, John was the person that was invited. Robin and Bill invited John on this secret crush show. And John thought that Robin had a crush on him, but in actuality, Bill had a crush on him. And you know, he, uh, John plays it off. John plays it off on the TV show, but you can clear, you know, his cues on his, in his face, he's uncomfortable by this idea. Um, and then what ends up happening is after the show, um, so he's blindsided by this news. And after the show, um, something happens where Bill invites John over to his house and tries to, um, propose that they engage in sexual activity or whatever. And, uh, John gets so enraged and masculinity so fragile that not only does he reject the advance, but then he later comes back to, uh, Bill's house and shoots Bill dead. And so this episode on trial by media is all about how the Jenny Jones show propped up this whole act this incident to happen. Now there's a whole lot of layers in here. And again, masculinity way too fragile. Um, the fact that this man who was gay is dead because all because someone else didn't like the idea that he was attracted to him makes it sound a little too easy for me. Makes it sound like that there's more to the story, right? Um, that it, anyway, so I won't give too much of it away, but watch that because it's heartbreaking. You actually hear from Bill's, the names that I just, that I just shared are made up, but you hear from Bill's brother. You hear from people who were connected to John. Obviously you hear from Robin. Um, 
and you hear from people connected to the Jenny Jones show. Jenny Jones show was a real show. Um, but yeah, look into that. I actually remember that, uh, that case. I don't, I wasn't, I don't think I was old enough to understand everything that was going on, but I understood that there was a gay guy who was killed because a straight guy didn't like the fact that the gay guy liked him. That's what my, my adolescent brain deduced. And I thought it was dumb and I thought it was senseless and I still do. Um, anyway, but yeah, so this series is interesting. I haven't watched other episodes and I don't know that I will, um, because sometimes too much, like you gotta have breaks, but anyway, um, so yeah, so watch those. Those are Netflix shows. Um, that's a show on Netflix. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting and it's, it's good conversation starters. So if you, um, I mean, that's my show basically for today. Um, if you have a comment about, um, the subway vigilante case, or if you have a comment about the Jenny Jones case, um, because that's close to you, you were, you have an opinion about it. I'd love to hear it. Um, in the show notes, the beautiful thing about the show notes of this, um, episode is that you can click a link and send me a note. Um, that note, that link will take you to a page where all you have to do is press a button to record a note to me. It'll go straight to me. Um, you don't have to download a thing in the world. Also in the show notes is a link for you to donate on my page. If that's something you want to do, even 99 cents would be a helpful contribution. But if that's not your thing, just share, share this episode or any episode with, um, that you think would be interesting with the people in your friend group. Um, and rate the show. Again, I thank the person, I said this last time, but this, the anonymous person that gave me five stars, I appreciate you because when you rate a show, and obviously if you rated five stars, that raises the visibility of the show as much as probably more than just sharing the show and getting, getting someone else to listen to it. I would suggest that you do both because I certainly enjoy doing this and I want to try to reach as many people as possible with, with what I'm trying to, you know, this little project that I'm doing. But, um, but yeah, so if rating the show five stars, leaving me a comment, I would love for you to leave at least your handle so that I can shout you out on the show. Um, because you're helping me and you don't have to, you literally don't have to do anything. You don't even have to give me five stars, which is why I keep wanting to shout out this anonymous person who just gave me not five stars because you didn't have to do that, but you did. Um, anyway, so, but yeah, so rate me on all of the places, um, podcast addict, pocket cast, cast box, um, player FM, or yeah, player.fm, uh, Spotify, Google play, Apple, all the places, Radio Public, all the places where you listen to the show, just keep listening and share, share, share alike. All right, that is it for now. Not too long of an episode. Again, I apologize for releasing a three hour plus episode last time. That's the last time that's gonna happen. I'm just not gonna do that no more. Um, and I know how I got to it too. I got to it because I, I record in segments, right? And I let time pass and then I record again. And I get to talking and I get carried away. And that's how you end up with a three hour show because you get carried away. But like three hours, like some of y'all, I know y'all listen to this as in its white noise as you're doing another project, but still three hours is a long time on an episode. So you're not going to get another three hour episode, but you might get a two hour. You know what I mean? You might get, you will definitely get an hour and 30 minute one for me, but no more three hours. No more, no more of that. Anyway. All right. Thank you for listening until next time.